talk to you about four questions that boost your spiritual life. Four questions that boost your spiritual life. I want to read to you from Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is not, a, it's not an upbeat book. It kind of talks about life in the raw when, things, when the rubber meets the road and all those other cool cliches that we use. But it talks about when your heart is heavy and you're not sure what's, which end is up. It talks about that. Let's, let's look at this together. It says, These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. It's chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south, then it blows north. Around and around it blows, blowing in circles. Rivers run to the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. Such uplifting words. But maybe somebody here feels like that this morning. How many of you know that our Christian life is not just one continuous rise, slowly ramping up from glory to glory, from victory to victory, until we just kind of go into heaven and enjoy the presence of the Lord? Life is, life, spiritual life is more like a roller coaster. It goes up and it goes down. You have victories, you have defeats, you have things that, that hit you hard. You just don't know what to make of it. Maybe you're in one of those low points this morning. Maybe you're in one of those troughs this morning. Your life has become kind of stale. You feel like you're going through the motions spiritually. Come on, we can all be honest about that. There are times when we feel as though we're just kind of here and we're wondering where God is and why we don't feel the same feelings that we had before and all of that kind of stuff that goes on. I want to suggest to you that, that there needs to be a reset in our lives sometimes. Sometimes we need to just go back to the cross. Start all over again. Go back to the midpoint of our lives and just kind of take it from there and see what God has for us. I want to suggest that there are four questions that you need to ask yourself from the book of James the book of James is a very practical book. I'd encourage you to read through it this afternoon as you're, as you're dozing off from the basketball games that are on or whatever you do on Sunday afternoon. Just take, pick up your Bible and just read through the book of James. It's not a long book. It's very short, as a matter of fact. And just see what it has to say to you. But we're going to look at four questions. And the first question is, how do I respond when trouble comes my way? How do I respond when trouble comes my way? It says in James 1, 2 through 4, Dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. Yeah, joy. For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. 
So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. The Bible talks about suffering in strange terms. It says, let it be an opportunity for joy. The Bible says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Those are two incongruous points that we have, and they really don't make a lot of sense to the unregenerated mind, the mind that's not lit up by the Holy Spirit. How many of you have discovered that there can be joy in the midst of trials and difficulties, that there can be joy in the middle of suffering even, that God can bring joy to us? We don't think of suffering as something that we can find joy in. It sounds, it sounds strange to us. It even sounds kind of cruel. God, how can you hold out and dangle in front of me this thing called joy when I'm going through these difficulties that I'm going through? But you'll notice that it says it's an opportunity for joy. It doesn't say that there's always joy in that, that it's automatically accrued to you, that if you're suffering, you're joyful, because that makes us feel like, I'm not joyful, what am I guilty of, what am I doing, what, what sin do I have in my life that's keeping me from doing the things that God wants me to do? We have a choice in the matter. Do you choose joy in your suffering, or do you choose to let suffering drive your emotions? It's possible to allow suffering to drive your emotions and to turn it into something negative and something terrible that drags you down. I want to give you three things to remember if you're going through suffering. And, and please, if you're going through suffering here today, I'm not saying just paste a smile on your face and get through it and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm talking about a real joy that God can give you deep down in your heart that's real, that's tangible, that's something you can feel, something that's there, that, that rises you above the suffering that you're in. There are three things I want you to remember if you're suffering this morning. First of all, remember that, remember that suffering is temporary. God's glory is eternal. Your suffering is temporary. God's, God's glory is eternal. Your suffering will end someday. Either it will run its course and you will find a way out from underneath it, or you'll go to be with Jesus and you'll be in glory. One of those two. But either one is eternal in nature, and those are the things that God has for us in this life. He has a glory that's eternal. And glorifying God in the middle of your suffering brings an eternality into your suffering and gives it purpose and gives it meaning. It says in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The church in Rome was going through suffering. They were going through persecution. They were going through difficulties. Paul wrote this from prison, as a matter of fact. He was suffering under jail, under, under guard and jail, uh, for the cause of Jesus Christ. And he said, you know what? I've just got to keep in mind, I've got to understand that this present suffering that you're going through is only temporary in nature and it won't be much compared with the glories of God in eternity. Number two, remember that no suffering can separate us from God's love. If you're going through suffering, God still loves you. It's not some kind of a punishment that He's putting upon you because you did wrong and He's, and he's trying, to, trying to slap you down or something like that. It says in, in, uh, in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, it says, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. 
So number two, our suffering cannot separate us from God's love. And number three, remember that Christ offers His comfort in our suffering. When we are suffering, Christ offers His comfort to us. It says in, in, uh, in the Bible, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also... <coughs> Excuse me, Halls. It says, For as just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds with Christ. Where the suffering of Jesus is, there's comfort that's available also. How do you respond to suffering in your life? What do you do when trouble comes your way? Do you panic? Do you fall apart? Do you go down into the deep doldrums? All of that's part of that. But do you stay there? Do you allow that to dominate your life? Or do you fight out from underneath it and allow God and His Holy Spirit to come and to find your great, His grace and your goodness in His life? Question number two. Where do I find my contentment? Where do I find my contentment? What are the things that content make me content? Where are the what are the things that bring me joy and peace and happiness in my life? A lot of things that we think are going to bring us peace don't bring us peace. It says in James 1, 9 through 11, it says, Christians who are poor should be glad, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should be glad, for God has humbled them. <clears throat> they will fade away like a flower in the field. The hot sun rises and dries the grass. The flower withers and its beauty fades away. So also wealthy people will fade away from all their achievements. If you're trying to find your, your joy in, in, in contentment in the things of this world, you've got another thought coming. Substitute for happiness. Many times we try to substitute happiness for contentment. We think that things are going to make us happy. When what Christ is looking for in our lives is to bring us contentment no matter where we are. Happiness depends upon circumstances. It says things that, like, if I just had a little bit more money, this next raise is really going to get me out of, the, out, of the, out of the debt that I'm in. I wish I had a different car. I wish I had a different house. If I just had a little bigger house, I would be happy. Or later on it happens, if I just had a little, a little littler house, it would make me happy. All the house cleaners said, amen. Are you living a contented life? Or are you constantly feeling as though if you just had a little bit more, a little different, a little different circumstance, a different spouse, a different job, a different something that you would be truly happy? We live in a culture that is constantly and actively trying to stir up discontent in our lives. You realize that? What do you think a commercial is? A commercial is an attempt to make you discontented with where you are and to want you to want more. The average person sees about 4,000 advertisements a day. You read through magazines. Most of it is advertising. You flip through Facebook. Most of it is, there's a huge chunk of advertising in that. They're trying to persuade you. Did you ever do a search for a motel room? on your computer and then you go to Facebook or something like that what are all the ads about so uh, not cell phones uh, uh, hotels how did I get hotels and cell phones mixed up my mind's working overtime this morning they're watching you there's no privacy anymore that's a whole nother sermon each one of those ads is designed to stir up discontent 
And I found that the things that bring contentment in our lives are things that cannot be purchased. They're things that you cannot buy with money. They're things like joy, peace, love, holiness, humility. It cannot be bought. It has to be received as a gift from God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25 and 26, listen to this. He says, this is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you will have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to Him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? The answer is no. All your worrying in the world is not going to add a single moment to your life. It's not going to add a single thing to your life at all. Down in verse 31 through 33. So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? Now in the American mind, that goes immediately to the thought of, What more can we have? To these people, this was bedrock, day-to-day living. Most people didn't know if they were going to have food tomorrow. Most people didn't know if they were going to have food the next week. They didn't know if their shelter was going to be there tomorrow. They didn't know if they were going to be alive tomorrow. Nick your finger on a nail, and it could cost you your life in their culture. They didn't have penicillin. They didn't have things like that. A common cold killed people early and often. They had no guarantee of life or anything beyond that. Jesus was talking about bedrock issues here. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and He will give you everything that you need. Seek the kingdom of God and righteousness above all of these things, and He will give you everything you need. There's a life of contentment that the, that the Christian can have in his life. And if you don't have contentment this morning, maybe that's the reason why you're feeling so out of it, so spiritually dull today, so spiritually out of it today, because you're putting your trust and your hope in the wrong things. You're putting it in your stuff when God wants us to put it in Him. Question number three. Am I living for today or for heaven? Am I living for today or for heaven? God blesses the people who patiently endure testing. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those that love Him. Afterwards, they will receive that crown of life. This verse goes against the way most of us live. We live for today, forgetting that there is an eternity that awaits us. We're short-sighted. We live for today. We want to be happy today. We want right now. It's the old prayer. God, grant me patience and give it to me now. We want everything right now. We want it right this instant. We want our food in the drive-thru to go faster. I caught myself in this. I drove through Chick-fil-A. Sorry, Sandy. I went without you. (laughs) Confession is good for the soul, especially in front of everybody where you can't do anything about it, right? I'm in Chick-fil-A line, and I go through the drive-thru, and I'm thinking, I'm sitting, you know, right where the curve is, and I'm thinking, no, I don't want to go to the right or the left. Which one's moving faster? Which one's getting, uh, getting through quicker? And I chose wrong. 
the guy ahead of me gave his order in Swahili or something, and I don't know what was going on, but it was just forever to take through there. And I just caught myself in an instant meditating on this this, this morning, meditating on this word that I'm going to give this morning. It's like the Holy Spirit said, Joe, are you listening to yourself? Are you living for today or for heaven? What are you in such a hurry about? Hebrews 11 is called the faith chapter. Now faith is, is the reality of what we hope for, the evidence of things we cannot see. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the evidence of things we hope for, the evidence of things we cannot see. And then it goes on and it talks about the hall of faith. And it lists all those great heroes of faith that are highlighted through the Bible. It starts with Abel, who offered up an offering by faith to God that was better than Cain's. And then it talks about Noah, who obeyed God by faith, even though there was no evidence of, of the rain and all of that kind of stuff that was coming. Noah built an ark in the face of a dry spell. And he did that by faith. And then it says, it's, and then it, says it was by faith, that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and to go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. He went without knowing where... Now, let's put that in today's context. Let's say God speaks to your heart this morning. And he says, sell your home, liquidate your assets, get your family together, because I'm sending you to another place. Where, God? Don't worry about it. Just get ready. How would that make you feel? I'd be scared. But Abraham, by faith, did all of that simply to obey God. And God counted it, it says in another piece of Scripture, God counted it as righteousness unto him. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was a foreigner living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Even when he got to the promised land, he couldn't buy the land and make it his. He lived there as a stranger and a foreigner, but he trusted God in faith that he was going to do what he said he would do. And then his son came and did the same thing. And then his son came and did the same thing. Until the Israelites came and conquered the land, hundreds of years later, did they see that promise fulfilled. But they all obeyed God, and it was an act of faith. How could they do that? Well, he tells us. He says, Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Heaven. He was looking forward to heaven. He was looking forward to that eternal home that you and I are promised. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and get you so that you can live with me there forever. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Do you live like you have a heavenly home and this is not your home? That old song, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That was written back in the 30s when a lot of people didn't have much to begin with. But you and I are rich beyond belief compared with them. And perhaps we've taken our eyes off of heaven and we've looked more at the things around us. That, that what was the ultimate sign of faith in God that Abraham had? It was the outright determination and heartfelt security that there was another home for him that was, that was there for him, a home in heaven that Abraham looked forward to. I'm convinced that a lot of the stress and spiritual angst we feel and the pressure and the pain we feel is because we've forgotten... We've forgotten that this world 
is not our home. And we get our priorities mixed up because of that too. Never had one person I met who on their deathbed said, I wish I had spent more time at the office. Because heaven is their home, not this place. It says in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, it goes through a list of all of the great men of God, men and women of God, who did God's greatness on this earth. And it says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. That's why they could say it doesn't matter whether God answers his promise during my lifetime, during my children's lifetime, during my grandchildren's lifetime. That doesn't matter because I've got the fulfillment of that promise in heaven and that's my real home. It says if they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. We have a city prepared for you and I, a city where the streets are made of gold, a city where it is beyond our wildest dreams because the presence of Jesus Christ dwells in that city. We will be with Him. He said, if I, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place, I will come for you so that where I am, you can be also. We're going to be with Jesus in that place. Do you live, are you living for today or are you living for heaven? And then fourthly, the fourth question that you need to ask yourself is, do I practice what I preach? Do I practice what I preach? James 1, 22 through 27 says this. The Bible is very clear on this, by the way, also. Listen to what the Word says. Remember, it is a message to obey, not just to listen to. It is a message to obey, not just, if I could change scripture just a little bit here, forgive me for that, not just agree with. There are a lot of things in scripture that we agree with, but do we practice them? There's a difference between the two. For if you just listen and don't obey, it's like looking at your face in a mirror but doing nothing to improve your appearance. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look steadily into God's perfect law, the law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Not believing it. Not agreeing with it. But for doing it. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your Facebook posts, oh, excuse me, if you don't control your tongue, you are just fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and lasting religion <clears throat> in the sight of God our Father means that we must care for orphans and widows in their troubles and refuse to let the world corrupt us. And refuse to let the world corrupt us. James 2, 14 through 17. Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions, by the way that you live? That kind of faith can't save anyone. You think the stakes are high? 
Suppose you see a brother or sister who needs food or clothing and you say, well, goodbye, God bless you, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? There are prayers that we pray that we should be answering ourselves because God has given us the wherewithal and the means to answer those prayers. You see, if it isn't, just, it isn't enough just to have faith. I didn't say that. The Bible said that. It isn't enough just to have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. Dead and useless. If you say you love your spouse, but you don't act like it, you are dead and useless. If you say you love your neighbor, but you don't act like it, you are dead and useless. If you say you love God, but you don't act like it, you are dead and useless. So what does all this mean? Well, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 has something very interesting to say to it. Okay, Joe, I get it. I need to come back to Christ. I need to get my life back in order. Many times that's just simply a change of focus, a change of, of what we're focusing on, what we're looking at. It's so easy to get distracted by this world and all of the things that it entails, all of, the, all of the ideals and all of the motives. We find ourselves being affected more by the world than we are by Jesus Christ. And that's when it's time to get your focus back. You know, back in Apollo 13, everybody remember Apollo 13? It was, the, it was the, uh, the space mission where an oxygen tank exploded while they were mixing it. It's a movie to also, a great movie, Apollo 13. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a story of what happened after that oxygen tank exploded and put the whole mission in peril, put the very lives of those astronauts in peril. And they, they used the moon to slingshot them back towards the earth. They were supposed to land on the moon, but they jettisoned the landing module and got back. Actually, they went and lived in the landing module for a while, but they, they jettisoned it back as they got closer to the earth, and they needed to make a course correction without computers during their travel back to earth. It was a 39-second burn of their fuel that would put them on course. If they missed it, they were goners. 39-second burn that had to be right on. And so what happened was James Lovell, the pilot of the ship, decided that he needed a point of, of, of uh, a point, a fixed point to look at through the whole thing. And through a little tiny triangle, if I remember correctly, triangular uh, window that was there, he decided that he was going to make that point of reference the earth. And so he kept his eye on that, on that earth and he began to do the burn and he did it successfully and they returned safely. But it all was on that focus, on that point in space that they kept their attention on so assiduously for 39 seconds, they had to make sure that they kept their eye on what they were focused on. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Listen to this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I want to encourage you, if you've lost that focus this morning, 
If there are other things in your life that are crowding out that fixing of your focus on Jesus himself, set that aside. Refocus this morning. Make it something that you're going to do with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your life. All of your life. As the music team returns this morning, as we begin to close this service, I want to encourage you.